We now continue with the opinion of the court in Burwell v. Hobby Lobby Stores, Inc. Part 3 Section A RFRA prohibits the government from substantially burdening a person's exercise of religion, even if the burden results from a rule of general applicability, unless the government demonstrates that application of the burden to the person, one, is in furtherance of a compelling governmental interest, and two, is the least restrictive means of furthering that compelling governmental interest. The first question that we must address is whether this provision applies to regulations that govern the activities of for-profit corporations, like Hobby Lobby, Conestoga, and Mardell. HHS contends that neither these companies nor their owners can even be heard under RFRA. According to HHS, the companies cannot sue because they seek to make a profit for their owners, and the owners cannot be heard because the regulations, at least as a formal matter, apply only to the companies and not to the owners as individuals. HHS's argument would have dramatic consequences. Consider this court's decision in Braunfeld v. Brown, 1961. In that case, five Orthodox Jewish merchants who ran small retail businesses in Philadelphia challenged a Pennsylvania Sunday closing law as a violation of the Free Exercise Clause. Because of their faith, these merchants closed their shops on Saturday, and they argued that requiring them to remain shut on Sunday threatened them with financial ruin. The court entertained their claim, although it ruled against them on the merits, and if a similar claim were raised today under RFRA against a jurisdiction still subject to the act. The merchants would be entitled to be heard. According to HHS, however, if these merchants chose to incorporate their businesses without in any way changing the size or nature of their businesses, they would forfeit all RFRA and free exercise rights. HHS would put these merchants to a difficult choice, either give up the right to seek judicial protection of their religious liberty or forego the benefits available to their competitors of operating as corporations. As we have seen, RFRA was designed to provide very broad protection for religious liberty. By enacting RFRA, Congress went far beyond what this court has held is constitutionally required. Is there any reason to think that the Congress that enacted such sweeping protection 
put small business owners to the choice that HHS suggests? An examination of RFRA's text, to which we turn in the next part of this opinion, reveals that Congress did no such thing. As we will show, Congress provided protection for people like the Hans and Greens by employing a familiar legal fiction. It included corporations within RFRA's definition of persons. But it is important to keep in mind that the purpose of this fiction is to provide protection for human beings. A corporation is simply a form of organization used by human beings to achieve desired ends. An established body of law specifies the rights and obligations of the people who are associated with a corporation in one way or another. When rights, whether constitutional or statutory, are extended to corporations, the purpose is to protect the rights of these people. For example, extending Fourth Amendment protection to corporations protects the privacy interests of employees and others associated with the company. Protecting corporations from government seizure of their property without just compensation protects all those who have a stake in the corporation's financial well-being, and protecting the free exercise rights of corporations like Hobby Lobby, Conestoga, and Mardell protects the religious liberty of the humans who own and control those companies. In holding that Conestoga, as a secular, for-profit corporation, lacks RFRA protection, the Third Circuit wrote as follows. General business corporations do not, separate and apart from the actions or belief systems of their individual owners or employees, exercise religion. They do not pray, worship, observe sacraments, or take other religiously motivated actions, separate and apart from the intention and direction of their individual actors. All of this is true, but quite beside the point. Corporations, separate and apart from the human beings who own, run, and are employed by them, cannot do anything at all. Section B. 1. As we noted above, RFRA applies to a person's exercise of religion. And RFRA itself does not define the term person. We therefore look to the Dictionary Act, which we must consult in determining the meaning of any act of Congress, unless the context indicates otherwise. Under the Dictionary Act, the word person includes corporations, companies, associations, firms, partnerships, societies, and joint stock companies, 
as well as individuals. Thus, unless there is something about the RFRA context that indicates otherwise, the Dictionary Act provides a quick, clear, and affirmative answer to the question whether the companies involved in these cases may be heard. We see nothing in the RFRA that suggests a congressional intent to depart from the Dictionary Act definition, and HHS makes little effort to argue otherwise. We have entertained RFRA and free exercise claims brought by nonprofit corporations. And HHS concedes that a nonprofit corporation can be a person within the meaning of RFRA. This concession effectively dispatches any argument that the term person, as used in RFRA, does not reach the closely held corporations involved in these cases. No known understanding of the term person includes some, but not all, corporations. The term person sometimes encompasses artificial persons, as the Dictionary Act instructs, and it sometimes is limited to natural persons. But no conceivable definition of the term includes natural persons and nonprofit corporations, but not for-profit corporations. Two. The principal argument advanced by HHS and the principal dissent regarding RFRA protection for Hobby Lobby, Conestoga, and Mardell focuses not on the statutory term person, but on the phrase exercise of religion. According to HHS and the dissent, these corporations are not protected by RFRA because they cannot exercise religion. Neither HHS nor the dissent, however, provides any persuasive explanation for this conclusion. Is it because of the corporate form? The corporate form alone cannot provide the explanation because, as we have pointed out, HHS concedes that nonprofit corporations can be protected by RFRA. The dissent suggests that nonprofit corporations are special because furthering their religious autonomy often furthers individual religious freedom as well. But this principle applies equally to for-profit corporations. Furthering their religious freedom also furthers individual religious freedom. In these cases, for example, allowing Hobby Lobby, Conestoga, and Mardell to assert RFRA claims protect the religious liberty of the Greens and the Hans. If the corporate form is not enough, what about the profit-making objective? In Braunfeld, we entertained the free exercise claims of individuals who were attempting to make a profit as retail merchants 
and the court never even hinted that this objective precluded their claims. As the court explained in a later case, the exercise of religion involves not only belief and profession, but the performance of or abstention from physical acts that are engaged in for religious reasons. Business practices that are compelled or limited by the tenets of a religious doctrine fall comfortably within that definition. Thus, a law that operates so as to make the practice of religious beliefs more expensive in the context of business activities imposes a burden on the exercise of religion. If, as Braunfeld recognized, a sole proprietorship that seeks to make a profit may assert a free exercise claim, why can't Hobby Lobby, Conestoga, and Mardell do the same? Some lower court judges have suggested that RFRA does not protect for-profit corporations because the purpose of such corporations is simply to make money. This argument flies in the face of modern corporate law. Each American jurisdiction today, either expressly or by implication, authorizes corporations to be formed under its General Corporation Act for any lawful purpose or business. While it is certainly true that a central objective of for-profit corporations is to make money, modern corporate law does not require for-profit corporations to pursue profit at the expense of everything else, and many do not do so. For-profit corporations, with ownership approval, support a wide variety of charitable causes, and it is not at all uncommon for such corporations to further humanitarian and other altruistic objectives. Many examples come readily to mind. So long as its owners agree, a for-profit corporation may take costly pollution control and energy conservation measures that go beyond what the law requires. A for-profit corporation that operates facilities in other countries may exceed the requirements of local law regarding working conditions and benefits. If for-profit corporations may pursue such worthy objectives, there is no apparent reason why they may not further religious objectives as well. HHS would draw a sharp line between nonprofit corporations, which HHS concedes are protected by RFRA, and for-profit corporations, which HHS would leave unprotected. But the actual picture is less clear-cut. Not all corporations that decline to organize as nonprofits do so in order to maximize profit. For example, organizations with religious and charitable aims might organize as for-profit corporations 
because of the potential advantages of that corporate form, such as the freedom to participate in lobbying for legislation or campaigning for political candidates who promote their religious or charitable goals. In fact, recognizing the inherent compatibility between establishing a for-profit corporation and pursuing non-profit goals, states have increasingly adopted laws formally recognizing hybrid corporate forms. Over half of the states, for instance, now recognize the benefit corporation, a dual-purpose entity that seeks to achieve both a benefit for the public and a profit for its owners. In any event, the objectives that may properly be pursued by the companies in these cases are governed by the laws of the states in which they were incorporated, Pennsylvania and Oklahoma. And the laws of those states permit for-profit corporations to pursue any lawful purpose or act, including the pursuit of profit in conformity with the owner's religious principles. 3. HHS and the principal dissent make one additional argument in an effort to show that a for-profit corporation cannot engage in the exercise of religion within the meaning of RFRA. HHS argues that RFRA did no more than codify this court's pre-Smith Free Exercise Clause precedents, and because none of those cases squarely held that a for-profit corporation has free exercise rights, RFRA does not confer such protection. This argument has many flaws. First, nothing in the text of RFRA as originally enacted suggested that the statutory phrase exercise of religion under the First Amendment was meant to be tied to this court's pre-Smith interpretation of that amendment. When first enacted, RFRA defined the exercise of religion to mean the exercise of religion under the First Amendment, not the exercise of religion as recognized only by then-existing Supreme Court precedents. When Congress wants to link the meaning of a statutory provision to a body of this court's case law, it knows how to do so. Second, if the original text of RFRA was not clear enough on this point, and we think it was, the First Amendment of RFRA through RLUIPA surely dispels any doubt. That amendment deleted the prior reference to the First Amendment. And neither HHS nor the principal dissent can explain why Congress did this if it wanted to tie RFRA coverage tightly to the specific holdings of our pre-Smith free exercise cases. 
Moreover, as discussed, the amendment went further, providing that the exercise of religion shall be construed in favor of a broad protection of religious exercise, to the maximum extent permitted by the terms of this chapter and the Constitution. It is simply not possible to read these provisions as restricting the concept of the exercise of religion to those practices specifically addressed in our pre-Smith decisions. Third, the one pre-Smith case involving the free exercise rights of a for-profit corporation suggests, if anything, that for-profit corporations possess such rights. In Gallagher v. Crown Kosher Supermarket of Massachusetts, Inc., 1961, the Massachusetts Sunday Closing Law was challenged by a kosher market that was organized as a for-profit corporation by customers of the market and by a rabbi. The Commonwealth argued that the corporation lacked standing to assert a free exercise claim, but not one member of the court expressed agreement with that argument. The plurality opinion for four justices rejected the First Amendment claim on the merits based on the reasoning in Braunfeld and reserved decision on the question whether the corporation had standing to raise the claim. The three dissenters, Justices Douglas, Brennan, and Stewart, found the law unconstitutional as applied to the corporation, and the other challengers thus implicitly recognized their right to assert a free exercise claim. Finally, Justice Frankfurter's opinion, which was joined by Justice Harlan, upheld the Massachusetts law on the merits, but did not question or reserve decision on the issue of the right of the corporation or any of the other challengers to be heard. It is quite a stretch to argue that RFRA, a law enacted to provide very broad protection for religious liberty, left for-profit corporations unprotected simply because, in Gallagher, the only pre-Smith case in which the issue was raised, a majority of the justices did not find it necessary to decide whether the kosher market's corporate status barred it from raising a free exercise claim. Finally, the results would be absurd if RFRA merely restored this court's pre-Smith decisions in ossified form and did not allow a plaintiff to raise a RFRA claim unless that plaintiff fell within a category of plaintiffs, one of whom had brought a free exercise claim that this court entertained in the years before Smith. For example, we are not aware of any pre-Smith case 
in which this court entertained a free exercise claim brought by a resident non-citizen. Are such persons also beyond RFRA's protective reach simply because the court never addressed their rights before Smith? Presumably, in recognition of the weakness of this argument, both HHS and the principal dissent fall back on the broader contention that the nation lacks a tradition of exempting for-profit corporations from generally applicable laws. By contrast, HHS contends statutes like Title VII expressly exempt churches and other non-profit religious institutions, but not for-profit corporations. In making this argument, however, HHS did not call to our attention the fact that some federal statutes do exempt categories of entities that include for-profit corporations from laws that would otherwise require these entities to engage in activities to which they object on grounds of conscience. If Title VII and similar laws show anything, it is that Congress speaks with specificity when it intends a religious accommodation not to extend to for-profit corporations. 4. Finally, HHS contends that Congress could not have wanted RFRA to apply to for-profit corporations because it is difficult as a practical matter to ascertain the sincere beliefs of a corporation. HHS goes so far as to raise the specter of divisive, polarizing proxy battles over the religious identity of large, publicly traded corporations such as IBM or General Electric. These cases, however, do not involve publicly traded corporations, and it seems unlikely that the sort of corporate giants to which HHS refers will often assert RFRA claims. HHS has not pointed to any example of a publicly traded corporation asserting RFRA rights, and numerous practical restraints would likely prevent that from occurring. For example, the idea that unrelated shareholders, including institutional investors with their own set of stakeholders, would agree to run a corporation under the same religious beliefs seems improbable. In any event, we have no occasion in these cases to consider RFRA's applicability to such companies. The companies in the cases before us are closely held corporations, each owned and controlled by members of a single family, and no one has disputed the sincerity of their religious beliefs. HHS has also provided no evidence 
that the purported problem of determining the sincerity of an asserted religious belief moved Congress to exclude for-profit corporations from RFRA's protection. On the contrary, the scope of RLUIPA shows that Congress was confident in the ability of the federal courts to weed out insincere claims. RLUIPA applies to institutionalized persons, a category that consists primarily of prisoners and, by the time of RLUIPA's enactment, the propensity of some prisoners to assert claims of dubious sincerity was well documented. Nevertheless, after our decision in City of Bourne, Congress enacted RLUIPA to preserve the right of prisoners to raise religious liberty claims. If Congress thought that the federal courts were up to the job of dealing with insincere prisoner claims, there is no reason to believe that Congress limited RFRA's reach out of concern for the seemingly less difficult task of doing the same in corporate cases. And if, as HHS seems to concede, Congress wanted RFRA to apply to nonprofit corporations. What reason is there to think that Congress believed that spotting insincere claims would be tougher in cases involving for profits? HHS and the principal dissent express concern about the possibility of disputes among the owners of corporations. But that is not a problem that arises because of RFRA or that is unique to this context. The owners of closely held corporations may, and sometimes do, disagree about the conduct of business. And even if RFRA did not exist, the owners of a company might well have a dispute relating to religion. For example, some might want a company's stores to remain open on the Sabbath in order to make more money, and others might want the stores to close for religious reasons. State corporate law provides a ready means for resolving any conflicts by, for example, dictating how a corporation can establish its governing structure. Courts will turn to that structure and the underlying state law in resolving disputes. For all these reasons, we hold that a federal regulation's restriction on the activities of a for-profit, closely held corporation must comply with RFRA. Part 4 Because RFRA applies in these cases, we must next ask whether the HHS contraceptive mandate substantially burdens the exercise of religion. We have little trouble concluding that it does. Section A 
as we have noted, the Hans and Greens have a sincere religious belief that life begins at conception. They therefore object on religious grounds to providing health insurance that covers methods of birth control that, as HHS acknowledges, may result in the destruction of an embryo. By requiring the Hans and Greens and their companies to arrange for such coverage, the HHS mandate demands that they engage in conduct that seriously violates their religious beliefs. If the Hans and Greens and their companies do not yield to this demand, the economic consequences will be severe. If the companies continue to offer group health plans that do not cover the contraceptives at issue, they will be taxed $100 per day for each affected individual. For Hobby Lobby, the bill could amount to $1.3 million per day, or about $475 million per year. For Conestoga, the assessment could be $90,000 per day, or $33 million per year. And for Mardell, it could be $40,000 per day, or about $15 million per year. These sums are surely substantial. It is true that the plaintiffs could avoid these assessments by dropping insurance coverage altogether and thus forcing their employees to obtain health insurance on one of the exchanges established under ACA. But if at least one of their full-time employees were to qualify for a subsidy on one of the government-run exchanges, this course would also entail substantial economic consequences. The companies could face penalties of $2,000 per employee each year. These penalties would amount to roughly $26 million for Hobby Lobby, $1.8 million for Conestoga, and $800,000 for Mardell. Section B. Although these totals are high, Amiki supporting HHS have suggested that the $2,000 per employee penalty is actually less than the average cost of providing health insurance, and therefore they claim the companies could readily eliminate any substantial burden by forcing their employees to obtain insurance in the government exchanges. We do not generally entertain arguments that were not raised below and are not advanced in this court by any party. And there are strong reasons to adhere to that practice in these cases. HHS, which presumably could have compiled the relevant statistics, has never made this argument, not in its voluminous briefing or at oral argument in this court, nor to our knowledge in any of the numerous cases in which the issue 
now before us, has been litigated around the country. As things now stand, we do not even know what the government's position might be with respect to these amici's intensely empirical argument. For this same reason, the plaintiffs have never had an opportunity to respond to this novel claim that contrary to their long-standing practice and that of most large employers, they would be better off discarding their employer insurance plans altogether. Even if we were to reach this argument, we would find it unpersuasive. As an initial matter, it entirely ignores the fact that the Hans and Greens and their companies have religious reasons for providing health insurance coverage for their employees. Before the advent of ACA, they were not legally compelled to provide insurance, but they nevertheless did so, in part, no doubt, for conventional business reasons, but also, in part, because their religious beliefs govern their relations with their employees. Putting aside the religious dimension of the decision to provide insurance, moreover, it is far from clear that the net cost to the companies of providing insurance is more than the cost of dropping their insurance plans and paying the ACA penalty. Health insurance is a benefit that employees value. If the companies simply eliminated that benefit and forced employees to purchase their own insurance on the exchanges without offering additional compensation, it is predictable that the companies would face a competitive disadvantage in retaining and attracting skilled workers. The companies could attempt to make up for the elimination of a group health plan by increasing wages, but this would be costly. Group health insurance is generally less expensive than comparable individual coverage, so the amount of the salary increase needed to fully compensate for the termination of insurance coverage may well exceed the cost to the companies of providing the insurance. In addition, any salary increase would have to take into account the fact that employees must pay income taxes on wages, but not on the value of employer-provided health insurance. Likewise, employers can deduct the cost of providing health insurance, but apparently cannot deduct the amount of the penalty that they must pay if insurance is not provided. That difference also must be taken into account. Given these economic incentives, it is far from clear that it would be financially advantageous for an employer to drop coverage and pay the penalty. In sum, we refuse to sustain the challenged regulations on the ground, never maintained by the government, that dropping insurance coverage eliminates the substantial burden that the HHS mandate imposes. We doubt that the Congress that enacted RFRA, 
or for that matter ACA, would have believed it a tolerable result to put family-run businesses to the choice of violating their sincerely held religious beliefs or making all of their employees lose their existing health care plans. Section C. In taking the position that the HHS mandate does not impose a substantial burden on the exercise of religion, HHS's main argument is basically that the connection between what the objecting parties must do, provide health insurance coverage for four methods of contraception that may operate after the fertilization of an egg, and the end that they find to be morally wrong, destruction of an embryo, is simply too attenuated. HHS and the dissent note that providing the coverage would not itself result in the destruction of an embryo. That would occur only if an employee chose to take advantage of the coverage and to use one of the four methods at issue. This argument dodges the question that RFRA presents and instead addresses a very different question that the federal courts have no business addressing. The Hans and Greens believe that providing the coverage demanded by the HHS regulations is connected to the destruction of an embryo in a way that is sufficient to make it immoral for them to provide the coverage. This belief implicates a difficult and important question of religion and moral philosophy, namely the circumstances under which it is wrong for a person to perform an act that is innocent in itself but that has the effect of enabling or facilitating the commission of an immoral act by another. Arrogating the authority to provide a binding national answer to this religious and philosophical question, HHS and the principal dissent in effect tell the plaintiffs that their beliefs are flawed. For good reason, we have repeatedly refused to take such a step. Moreover, in Thomas v. Review Board of Indiana Employment Security Division, 1981, we considered and rejected an argument that is nearly identical to the one now urged by HHS and the dissent. In Thomas, a Jehovah's Witness was initially employed making sheet steel for a variety of industrial uses, but he was later transferred to a job making turrets for tanks. Because he objected on religious grounds to participating in the manufacture of weapons, he lost his job and sought unemployment compensation. Ruling against the employee, the state court 
had difficulty with the line that the employee drew between work that he found to be consistent with his religious beliefs and work that he found morally objectionable. This court, however, held that it is not for us to say that the line he drew was an unreasonable one. Similarly, in these cases, the Hans and Greens and their companies sincerely believe that providing the insurance coverage demanded by the HHS regulations lies on the forbidden side of the line, and it is not for us to say that their religious beliefs are mistaken or insubstantial. Instead, our narrow function in this context is to determine whether the line drawn reflects an honest conviction, and there is no dispute that it does. HHS, nevertheless, compares these cases to decisions in which we rejected the argument that the use of general tax revenue to subsidize the secular activities of religious institutions violated the Free Exercise Clause. But in those cases, while the subsidies were clearly contrary to the challenger's views on a secular issue, namely proper church-state relations, the challengers never articulated a religious objection to the subsidies. As we put in Tilton, they were unable to identify any coercion directed at the practice or exercise of their religious beliefs. Here, in contrast, the plaintiffs do assert that funding the specific contraceptive methods at issue violates their religious beliefs, and HHS does not question their sincerity. Because the contraceptive mandate forces them to pay an enormous sum of money, as much as $475 million per year in the case of Hobby Lobby, if they insist on providing insurance coverage in accordance with their religious beliefs, the mandate clearly imposes a substantial burden on those beliefs. Part 5 Since the HHS contraceptive mandate imposes a substantial burden on the exercise of religion, we must move on and decide whether HHS has shown that the mandate both, one, is in furtherance of a compelling governmental interest, and two, is the least restrictive means of furthering that compelling governmental interest. Section A. HHS asserts that the contraceptive mandate serves a variety of important interests, but many of these are couched in very broad terms, such as promoting public health and gender equality. RFRA, however, contemplates a more focused inquiry. 
it requires the government to demonstrate that the compelling interest test is satisfied through application of the challenged law to the person, the particular claimant whose sincere exercise of religion is being substantially burdened. This requires us to look beyond broadly formulated interests and to scrutinize the asserted harm of granting specific exemptions to particular religious claimants. In other words, to look to the marginal interest in enforcing the contraceptive mandate in these cases. In addition to asserting these very broadly framed interests, HHS maintains that the mandate serves a compelling interest in ensuring that all women have access to all FDA-approved contraceptives without cost-sharing. Under our cases, women and men have a constitutional right to obtain contraceptives. And HHS tells us that studies have demonstrated that even moderate copayments for preventive services can deter patients from receiving those services. The objecting parties contend that HHS has not shown that the mandate serves a compelling government interest, and it is arguable that there are features of ACA that support that view. As we have noted, many employees, those covered by grandfathered plans, and those who work for employers with fewer than 50 employees, may have no contraceptive coverage without cost-sharing at all. HHS responds that many legal requirements have exceptions, and the existence of exceptions does not in itself indicate that the principal interest served by a law is not compelling. Even a compelling interest may be outweighed in some circumstances by another even weightier consideration. In these cases, however, the interest served by one of the biggest exceptions, the exception for grandfathered plans, is simply the interest of employers in avoiding the inconvenience of amending an existing plan. Grandfathered plans are required to comply with a subset of the Affordable Care Act's health reform provisions that provide what HHS has described as particularly significant protections. But the contraceptive mandate is expressly excluded from this subset. We find it unnecessary to adjudicate this issue. We will assume that the interest in guaranteeing cost-free access to the four challenged contraceptive methods is compelling within the meaning of RFRA, and we will proceed to consider the final prong of the RFRA test, i.e., whether HHS has shown that the contraceptive mandate is the least restrictive means of furthering that compelling governmental interest. 
Section B. The least restrictive means standard is exceptionally demanding, and it is not satisfied here. HHS has not shown that it lacks other means of achieving its desired goal without imposing a substantial burden on the exercise of religion by the objecting parties in these cases. The most straightforward way of doing this would be for the government to assume the cost of providing the four contraceptives at issue to any women who are unable to obtain them under their health insurance policies due to their employer's religious objections. This would certainly be less restrictive of the plaintiff's religious liberty, and HHS has not shown that this is not a viable alternative. HHS has not provided any estimate of the average cost per employee of providing access to these contraceptives, two of which, according to the FDA, are designed primarily for emergency use. Nor has HHS provided any statistics regarding the number of employees who might be affected because they work for corporations like Hobby Lobby, Conestoga, and Mardell, nor has HHS told us that it is unable to provide such statistics. It seems likely, however, that the cost of providing the forms of contraceptives at issue in these cases would be minor when compared with the overall cost of ACA. According to one of the Congressional Budget Office's most recent forecasts, ACA's insurance coverage provisions will cost the federal government more than $1.3 trillion through the next decade. If, as HHS tells us, Providing all women with cost-free access to all FDA-approved methods of contraception is a government interest of the highest order. It is hard to understand HHS's argument that it cannot be required under RFRA to pay anything in order to achieve this important goal. HHS contends that RFRA does not permit us to take this option into account because RFRA cannot be used to require creation of entirely new programs. But we see nothing in RFRA that supports this argument, and drawing the line between the creation of an entirely new program and the modification of an existing program would be fraught with problems. We do not doubt that cost may be an important factor in the least restrictive means analysis, but both RFRA and its sister statute, RLUIPA, may in some circumstances require the government to expend additional funds to accommodate citizens' religious beliefs. HHS's view that RFRA 
can never require the government to spend even a small amount reflects a judgment about the importance of religious liberty that was not shared by the Congress that enacted that law. In the end, however, we need not rely on the option of a new government-funded program in order to conclude that the HHS regulations fail the least restrictive means test. HHS itself has demonstrated that it has at its disposal an approach that is less restrictive than requiring employers to fund contraceptive methods that violate their religious beliefs. As we explained above, HHS has already established an accommodation for nonprofit organizations with religious objections. Under that accommodation, the organization can self-certify that it opposes providing coverage for particular contraceptive services. If the organization makes such a certification, the organization's insurance issuer or third-party administrator must expressly exclude contraceptive coverage from the group health insurance coverage provided in connection with the group health plan and provide separate payments for any contraceptive services required to be covered without imposing any cost-sharing requirements on the eligible organization, the group health plan, or plan participants or beneficiaries. We do not decide today whether an approach of this type complies with RFRA for purposes of all religious claims. At a minimum, however, it does not impinge on the plaintiff's religious belief that providing insurance coverage for the contraceptives at issue here violates their religion, and it serves HHS's stated interests equally well. The principal dissent identifies no reason why this accommodation would fail to protect the asserted needs of women as effectively as the contraceptive mandate, and there is none. Under the accommodation, the plaintiff's female employees would continue to receive contraceptive coverage without cost-sharing for all FDA-approved contraceptives, and they would continue to face minimal logistical and administrative obstacles because their employers' insurers would be responsible for providing information and coverage. Ironically, it is the dissent's approach that would impede women's receipt of benefits by requiring them to take steps to learn about and to sign up for a new government-funded and administered health benefit because the dissent would effectively compel religious employers to drop health insurance coverage altogether, leaving their employees to find individual plans on government-run exchanges or elsewhere. This is indeed scarcely what Congress contemplated. Section C. 
HHS and the principal dissent argue that a ruling in favor of the objecting parties in these cases will lead to a flood of religious objections regarding a wide variety of medical procedures and drugs, such as vaccinations and blood transfusions. But HHS has made no effort to substantiate this prediction. HHS points to no evidence that insurance plans in existence prior to the enactment of ACA excluded coverage for such items, nor has HHS provided evidence that any significant number of employers sought exemption on religious grounds from any of ACA's coverage requirements other than the contraceptive mandate. It is HHS's apparent belief that no insurance coverage mandate would violate RFRA, no matter how significantly it impinges on the religious liberties of employers, that would lead to intolerable consequences. Under HHS's view, RFRA would permit the government to require all employers to provide coverage for any medical procedure allowed by law in the jurisdiction in question. For instance, third trimester abortions or assisted suicide. The owners of many closely held corporations could not in good conscience provide such coverage, and thus HHS would effectively exclude these people from full participation in the economic life of the nation. RFRA was enacted to prevent such an outcome. In any event, our decision in these cases is concerned solely with the contraceptive mandate. Our decision should not be understood to hold that an insurance coverage mandate must necessarily fall if it conflicts with an employer's religious beliefs. Other coverage requirements, such as immunizations, may be supported by different interests. For example, the need to combat the spread of infectious diseases, and may involve different arguments about the least restrictive means of providing them. The principal dissent raises the possibility that discrimination in hiring, for example, on the basis of race, might be cloaked as religious practice to escape legal sanction. Our decision today provides no such shield. The government has a compelling interest in providing an equal opportunity to participate in the workforce without regard to race, and prohibitions on racial discrimination are precisely tailored to achieve that critical goal. HHS also raises for the first time in this court the argument that applying the contraceptive mandate to for-profit employers with sincere religious objections is essential to the comprehensive health insurance scheme that ACA establishes. HHS analogizes the contraceptive mandate 
to the requirement to pay Social Security taxes, which we upheld in Lee despite the religious objection of an employer. But these cases are quite different. Our holding in Lee turned primarily on the special problems associated with a national system of taxation. We noted that the obligation to pay the Social Security tax initially is not fundamentally different from the obligation to pay income taxes. Based on that premise, we explained that it was untenable to allow individuals to seek exemptions from taxes based on religious objections to particular government expenditures. If, for example, a religious adherent believes war is a sin, and if a certain percentage of the federal budget can be identified as devoted to war-related activities, such individuals would have a similarly valid claim to be exempt from paying that percentage of the income tax. We observed that the tax system could not function if denominations were allowed to challenge the tax system because tax payments were spent in a manner that violates their religious belief. Lee was a free exercise, not an RFRA case. But if the issue in Lee were analyzed under the RFRA framework, the fundamental point would be that there simply is no less restrictive alternative to the categorical requirement to pay taxes. Because of the enormous variety of government expenditures funded by tax dollars, allowing taxpayers to withhold a portion of their tax obligations on religious grounds would lead to chaos. Recognizing exemptions from the contraceptive mandate is very different. ACA does not create a large national pool of tax revenue for use in purchasing health care coverage. Rather, individual employers like the plaintiffs purchase insurance for their own employees. And contrary to the principal dissent's characterization, the employer's contributions do not necessarily funnel into undifferentiated funds. The accommodation established by HHS requires issuers to have a mechanism by which to segregate premium revenue collected from the eligible organization from the monies used to provide payments for contraceptive services. Recognizing a religious accommodation under RFRA for particular coverage requirements, therefore, does not threaten the viability of ACA's comprehensive scheme in the way that recognizing religious objections to particular expenditures from general tax revenues would. In its final pages, the principal dissent reveals that its fundamental objection to the claims of the plaintiffs is an objection to RFRA itself. The dissent worries about forcing the federal courts to apply RFRA 
to a host of claims made by litigants seeking a religious exemption from generally applicable laws, and the dissent expresses a desire to keep the courts out of this business. In making this plea, the dissent reiterates a point made forcefully by the court in Smith. But Congress, in enacting RFRA, took the position that the compelling interest test as set forth in prior federal court rulings is a workable test for striking sensible balances between religious liberty and competing prior governmental interests. The wisdom of Congress's judgment on this matter is not our concern. Our responsibility is to enforce RFRA as written, and under the standard that RFRA prescribes, the HHS contraceptive mandate is unlawful. The contraceptive mandate, as applied to closely held corporations, violates RFRA. Our decision on that statutory question makes it unnecessary to reach the First Amendment claim raised by Conestoga and the Hans. The judgment of the Tenth Circuit in number 13354 is affirmed. The judgment of the Third Circuit in number 13356 is reversed, and that case is remanded for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.